What up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Real Talk Podcast. Appreciate you all listening. It's been a while since we got on another episode. Today, I'm doing this solo dolo, just real quickly, Friday evening. Things tend to settle down. Our clients are at home with their families or friends or whatnot. It's not necessarily pounding down the door and putting out fire mode on a Friday night. So, a lot easier to record for you guys. I just wanted to jump on a couple topics. Don't want to, this episode won't be that long. It's been a wild week. Uh, we IPO'd on April 1st. Wanted to talk to you all about that. Some interesting stories of what was happening behind the scenes leading up to April 1st, the day of the IPO. Also wanted to talk to you all about the problems of the modern day rental market. You know, we've been, we represent hundreds of landlords and hundreds of units all across Manhattan. Individual units, co-op condo units, along with multifamily apartments. And there's just been a theme of people coming to me with a lot of questions and I felt like it's easier to address it on a podcast platform so that perhaps listeners will one day educate themselves on the difficulties and the hell that it is to be in the rental market game in Manhattan. Also, real quickly, I'll probably discuss this with my friend Sean Hughes in the next week or two, but new bill proposed by the government, the state of New York, where the co-op boards must now disclose and explain why they have denied buyers. Wanted to give you a lowdown on the bill and my thoughts on that as well. And on a final note, I won't talk about this on the podcast episode, but Bell, Colorado, we just opened, baby. So we are now in one of the biggest luxury markets in the state of Colorado, which is in Bell, which is the ski resort. Bell last year alone, I think third quarter alone, had close to $1 billion in sales in that market. Bell's not a big town like Manhattan or Chicago or D.C., you know, it's right. It's got one highway and then one main or two main roads, I guess, South Frontage Road and North Frontage Road. And across that, a couple mile landscape, there are a lot of homes that trade for a high amount of prices. So we acquired the Tyler Stockton Group of Bell, Colorado, and I met with the partner there, Tom Dunn, who came on my podcast. So that will be an episode that will be launched very soon. I hope you enjoy it. We talk a lot about skiing, snowboarding, outdoors, real estate, life. Uh, It'll be a great episode. So now let's get to a quick break and then we'll get to my story of IPO day. So April 1st was a very cool day, very monumental milestone for us. Compass went public on the stock exchange and a bunch of us went to the event. We were on Wall Street. First time I've seen probably 20 people since the pandemic began, you know, it was uh, quite a wild time and and really good to see a lot of old faces, people that you've only seen on Zoom for the past year to two years or a year to year and a half. So anyway, so that was a good time, but there were some events apparently that we were not aware of uh, leading up to the IPO day. So Billy Wang, this guy, he's a hedge fund guy. We're not really in the finance world, so I don't know the entirety of the story, but Billy Huang runs this hedge fund called Archegos Capital. He is kind of a a wonder kid of Wall Street. He started off relatively unknown, left Tiger Management, started his own gig, got in trouble with the SEC, and then he, wherever he... Whatever he's done, he's you know he he's taken whatever money he had and he ran it up somewhere between five to ten billion dollars. He's hit the ball out of the park, really. I mean, he he goes to these banks and does something called an equity swap, which is a simple way for you to bet on an appreciation of a stock 
relative to the index and then hedge it against uh, the index itself. It's, it synthetically allows him to own huge positions but not be listed in disclosures. So the word synthetic means you're not buying the stock, but you're using the bank's money to buy the contract and, it, and then it gets hedged against the S&P. Two weeks before, so around March 15th, this guy gets stopped on a trade when Viacom CBS's $3 billion stock offering through Morgan Stanley and JP Morgan basically it fell apart. So it triggered a domino effect where their positions had to be closed out, resulting in a huge margin call all across the board. It even triggered Goldman Sachs, who was one of our investors, to sell off via block trade about $10 billion in stocks within, within a matter of days, I think one or two days. I think the total was like a $4 billion sell-off of Viacom, CVS, uh, and Discovery, and all of that. So essentially, a scale that, has, has, that Goldman has never seen since 2009, I believe in 2009, they did a block trade of over the course of the year of about $10 billion. Never before had they done anything like that in one day. So it kind of triggered a... Uh, uh, domino effect throughout Wall Street, worried a lot of investors, but the collapse of Archegos Capital essentially wiped out a lot of money across hedge funds and banks that were buyers of, of Compass stock and other, other, I think there's other four or five other companies that were supposed to go public that day. And out of those five companies, only two, Compass and another company were the only two companies that successfully went public only because uh, Rufkin was able to, hey, this is public now, he put up his own money uh, to go public. And he also uh, had called uh, Goldman and, and they were able to put up additional capital for us in order for us to successfully go IPO. A lot of things happened that were kind of behind the scenes that none of us really knew about. The only thing that we saw was a devaluation of per share capital. I think we were supposed to go public between $26 to $28 per share. Uh, instead, that was scaled down to uh, $17 to $19 per share. I did not know this, but if you file an SEC uh, filing to go IPO, and then you end up canceling the IPO, that company is unable to go public for at least another year. And Refkin's plan was, that, those were not in the cards for Refkin, and he was able to make some calls, put up additional capital to make Compass go public on April 1st. Like, I guess a lot, you know, obviously a lot was riding on this, and it would have been, Backed by SoftBank, we did not probably want to be, from a PR standpoint, another failed company like WeWork to go to not be able to go public when they initially try to go public. We'll take a quick break and then come back to discuss the dreaded rental market. So regardless of COVID or not, it's that time of the year. It's April, May, June, July, August. It's the seasonal highs of the rental market. And if you're in our business, whether you're strictly sales brokers, hybrid brokers, rental brokers, whatnot, you're always going to probably have friends, families, clients, friends come to you and rely on data, rely on information of how to secure a rental apartment in New York City. and. The, the talk team, we're hybrid brokers. We represent a lot of sellers, buyers, but we also represent a ton of landlords. I, I We started this business as a tenant specialist, just, just like any other real estate broker. When you don't have clients, what do you do? You post ads on Craigslist or websites to, in hopes of getting leads of people that are looking to rent apartments through you. And you hope to God that you can close, their, close the deal through them. So I wanted to do this topic 
very quickly, and there's probably there probably will be other series of events where we talk about more more talk more about the rental market and how it really works because it is really frustrating and, and mysterious. It's it's not a perfect it's this is not a perfect industry whatsoever, and the data is not always correct, and the uh, brokers aren't always accurate in what they say. So we'll discuss a couple things today just to clear up some topics. I had an opportunity to speak to three or four different types of people that are moving into the city in the last probably two weeks. Uh, they're friends of friends or friends of compasses or whatnot. And I, I'm always happy to give free advice and just my, share some knowledge to ensure that their experiences are not as tough or rough as it actually could be. Uh, in New York City, the, the, everybody is segmented. The data is segmented. The landlords don't work with everybody. The brokers don't work with everybody. Uh, the uh, brokerages don't like to share a ton of information, and the landlords don't like to share a ton of information. So people that are used to a, a perfect, quote-unquote, internet world uh, where data is free and, and information is readily available, you know, they might walk into the, the New York City real estate market to find things to be very frustrating and very tough. So I think one thing that people should understand is if you're in a budget that is a little bit of a lower, let's just say on the lower end of the spectrum in New York City. So if it's a share, you're probably looking at three to $3,500 a month for two bedroom or $4,500 a month for a three bedroom. Or if it's a rental, you're looking at maybe like a one bedroom or studio for like $2,000 or $2,500 a month. I mean, those are kind of on the lower end ends of the spectrum of New York City. And you as a renter go and, and reach out to, let's just say, a, a broker on StreetEasy, uh, per the Department of State, they you are going directly to the, that agent who represents the owner. They also represent you as the tenant's, quote-unquote, tenant's agent. So it's called dual agency. And while that's very, very important for brokers to know and the tenants to know, the brokers, in reality, in actuality, they don't really care about you, the tenant. They rep- they still represent the landlord. They represent the owner because that's their client. That's where they got the listing from. That's where their source of income is from. That's where they generate business. So just keep that in mind that per on paper, while they may represent you on paper, you're reaching out to them on their client's listing. So that broker really only cares about renting that apartment and not really representing you. And how did this come about? You know, why why does a broker not care about you, the renter? It's primarily because these renters, A, are all very, very abusive to brokers. And I know this just because I do this personally. I do this every day. B, the tent renters, even if, let's just say, you were open to working with that agent that has that listing to view other apartments, renters typically are not loyal customers. They're, it's not. It's different than buying a home. They tend to work with five, six, seven different brokers just because the data is so scattered and it's not the tenant's fault. It's just a system. It's a system's fault in the way the system's set up. So these renters will go around looking at sometimes the same exact listings with three other brokers only to find out, only to frustrate the brokers because it's their time they're spending showing you apartments. It also frustrates the tenants because the tenants have already seen that apartment three times through three different brokers. So the experience is never good. It's never really seamless. But it's important to know and understand that if you as a renter feel like you're the, the broker is being a little rude, it's because they don't care about you as a consumer, as the tenant. They only care about the landlord. And they want to make sure that you are being a good 
uh, you are a good fit for that apartment and a good tenant for that apartment and not any, not anything else. And then another thing that I want to talk to you about is the tenant's attitude really matters. Meaning, yeah, you're not in this market. You're not really, you're not really paying the broker. The owner ends up paying the broker. So you demanding uh, or demanding or being rude to a listing agent who's trying to show you the apartment is not really going to help or or incentivize the broker who is again quote unquote technically technically dual agent but in this situation is also representing the landlord and mostly the landlord and thinking most of the time about the landlord if you're rude to that agent then chances are that agent will think that you're going to be rude to the client too and then if you're rude to the client then the landlord is eventually going to come back to that listing agent and say hey talk like why would you bring somebody so rude and, and aggressive uh into my apartment and it's a bad look for the broker so when you're rude like that it's not necessarily discrimination if they're not going to show you the apartment it's just simple business and they're probably going to think you know why would i why would i want to it's like it's like being rude to a, a manager in a restaurant like they don't have to serve you um it's the same concept this is a business too if you're really rude to a listing agent that listing agent may not may not really have to show you the apartment uh, and we'll wait for somebody else. And then, you know, the third thing that I want to touch base on briefly is uh, th- these are different markets in, in, in COVID. So, yeah, while you may see high-end apartments giving away three, four, five, six, you know, three, well, maybe not five, but, but two, three, four months of free rent in areas that are very, very saturated with uh, vacancies, Long Island City, Midtown East, Midtown West, some parts of the Upper East Side, some parts of the Upper West Side. Some parts of the Hudson Yards, there's not a lot of people renting there. It doesn't necessarily mean it's the same all across the board. I think a lot of people that have uh, that have consulted in the last few days are under the impression that everything is being given away, and it's not necessarily true at all. I, I would say 99% of my landlords have lost money this year or within the last 12 months since COVID happened. But the, those landlords that own property in the West Village, uh, parts of Soho, parts of Tribeca parts of Flatiron, um, parts of Union Square. I mean, the, those neighborhoods are relatively strong and vacancy rate is still quite low, believe it or not. So I would just be cautious in, the, in that type of approach and thinking that you could uh, negotiate away uh, to listening agents and um, just, be nice, just, just be nice to them. Uh, don't be aggressive as far as uh, negotiations are concerned because uh, you might be in for a little bit of a rude awakening. Take a quick, quick break, and uh, we'll talk about the uh, New York City co-op boards and what the new, most recent Wall Street Journal article discussed. So this is a very interesting article that was published last week on the Wall Street Journal. The title goes, New York City co-op boards would have to explain why they deny buyers under new bill. Traditionally, co-ops, as you may know, have been protected by business class laws, right? It's it's a corporation. It's run like a company. So if you submit your application to reside in the premises, they can reject you and they don't have to give a reason and they're protected within business class laws on why. It's very, it's run like a business. So if you apply for a job and they reject you, they don't have to really give you a reason. If you apply to a club, uh, or, or a company, whatever. If you apply to a club or an organization and they reject your application to join, they don't have to give you a reason. And 
it's very it's been very controversial for housing because it a it is housing. So if you don't qualify for income, obviously they have the right to reject you. But the problem lies in what if they a don't like the way you make money. You're a lawyer, you know, litigious people. We don't want lawyers. Or and the board just rejects the, the board decides to reject this buyer because they're a lawyer because of their profession. Or obviously there's some other problems like race, creed, nationality, and whatnot. So co-op boards have historically been able to get away with potentially rejecting buyers based on that. Another thing that's common, and this is where I have the biggest beef with co-op boards, is they reject buyers based on the purchase price. You may know in real estate, the property is worth what the public is willing to pay for. But if the co-op board comes in and sees the application and thinks, oh, this apartment is priced a little bit too low, or, oh, I own an apartment right below this purchase application, and I know that it is not worth X. And then they flat out reject the application. Now, if the property's on the market for 10 days, and it goes into contract, and the price you think is too low, fine, I get it. But if the property's on the market for, for 20, you know, 200 days, 300 days, you know, one year plus, and it finally gets an application and goes to, sits to the board, then you know, as well as the board should, that the property is probably worth what that is, what that buyer is going to pay for. So the values, in my opinion, of co-op boards have always taken a hit because of reasons like that. The buyers are scared to get rejected. The buyers are scared that if they're approved, it's going to be a harder time to sell it. And in the modern era of today's society, that closed uh, iron curtain or the, that closed veal of mystery is not really attractive to these buyers these days anymore. You think a millennial buyer wants to buy into an old pre-war co-op building that has hurdles that they have to get into. And, on, and also on top of that, they don't own the property. They own shares of a corporation. No, they want these buyers, the millennial buyers and newer buyers want to get into something that has a little bit more flexibility. And also they own the land so they don't have to be dominated by another quote unquote company above them that makes all the decisions for them. So you know, this is one of the reasons why the, the values of co-ops have always been a little bit lower is that. Now, going back to the, the article, that the state lawmakers are proposing new rules that would basically require New York City co-op boards to state why they rejected a potential apartment buyer in efforts to end the practice of quote-unquote housing discrimination. Now, personally, being in the business, I don't really i have not really i have not never experienced a board rejecting a buyer or a board rejecting a deal because of race creed or nationality i think new york city is way too liberal for that they're very very inclusive let's just say that um i however i have experienced personally uh, boards rejecting buyers because of again what i said earlier purchase price and financials and obviously objective of use Objective of your use can range anywhere from there's a second home period of tear or an investment or they're buying it for their son or daughter, but the daughter or son may have some interesting financial situations such as aka their students or their they have student loans or their income is not high enough or they're not earning a salary, but they're working, but it's part time or it's an hourly job, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, this state Senate bill, which is sponsored by the Housing Committee Chair Brian Kavanaugh. 
the, the District of Manhattan. Uh, he is saying that the residential co-op and condo boards would have to provide a written explanations when they decide to turn down applicants who want to purchase within their building. And again, you know, under current law, the boards aren't required to offer any reasons, like I said earlier. This is very interesting. I, I personally love this, but I could also see a lot of co-op boards, even in condo too, but mostly in co-op boards, opening themselves up to unnecessary litigation when they do this. Meaning, the buyer gets rejected. Mr. Smith, you've been rejected. The co-op board now has to issue a reason. Well, it's because you're, after your down payment and closing costs, you only have six months of monthly operating costs. Well, now they open themselves to litigation by saying, well, you know, I had a hard time. I had a divorce. You're discriminating against my financial situation. I just feel like this could open up co-op boards into a arena that hasn't really been experienced in the past. And then the second thing that I, I guess I could talk about is co-op residents don't own their own apartments. They buy shares of a co corporation and then the co-op owns the land. It's still a company, so it should still be run like a company. Co-ops are more financially stable than other types of buildings just because of the rigid financial requirements that are needed in order for you to be able to go into a co-op. One of the great things about co-ops is that you know exactly your, who your neighbors are and their financial standings. Now, one way I think that we could fix this bill or modify this bill is to have flat out across the board written in the house rules that govern the co-op's policies, the financial requirements for a buyer must be X, Y, and Z. And if you reject the buyer, you could throw that piece of paper to that buyer and say, this is why we, we, we rejected you. And most of you in the business know, but the requirements for a co-op board approval are usually A, credit rating, B, debt to income ratio, and C, post-closing liquidity assets. If you don't meet those three requirements, and those requirements can vary by building, then you cannot be board approved. And if you put that in writing, then I think the co-op protects themselves from unnecessary litigation exposure. And then the buyers can also protect themselves time-wise and financially going after a building that they won't even qualify for. Uh, real quickly, DTI is debt to income. Uh, most co-op require a 25% debt to income ratio, meaning uh, your monthly liabilities, including your current liabilities and future assumed liabilities must be no more than 25% of your monthly income before tax. Put it simply, if your mortgage maintenance interest and any other debt obligations are $2,500 a month, you should be earning 10 grand a month before tax. And then you know, the third requirement is post-closing post liquidity assets, which means you know if you have a cash, let's just say, you put down a down payment of $100,000, but the co-op requires you to have uh, 24 months of carrying costs uh, uh, and your carrying costs are just say 10 grand a month. Then you're looking at $240,000. You have to have at least $240,000 in your bank account after your down payment. So, you know, have co-ops should just have those things in writing these days so that there is no obscure oh, you know, I'm just going to play favors on this person or I don't want a purchase price to be, you know, I don't want a low purchase price to go through the co-op board. It just, it just hurts the buyers. It hurts the seller. It hurts the real estate market unnecessarily. And uh, yeah, I propose, I, I, I do like this bill. I think it should be modified slightly just to be more even on both sides. But let's see what happens. And, um, you know, when, when there is a little bit more exposure to, the details of this bill and if it, if it does pass i'm sure we'll revisit it and i would love to talk about it with uh, some of my other listeners on this podcast as well so uh, that's it for today thanks for listening to the real talk podcast 
We will 